Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Today we have with us an absolute legend, 18 Grand Slam singles titles, including 6 US Open titles and 7 French Open titles, 157 overall singles titles, along with 32 doubles titles. Consistency defined this legend's career. She reached the semis or better in 52 of the 56 Grand Slams she played. She was the fourth player ever to be unanimously elected into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Please welcome to the pod, Chris Everett. Chris, thank you so much for spending some time and talking to me today. Oh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Thank you. When I, when I mention you, I mention Martina. When I mention Martino, people mention you. So I want to talk about rivals in tennis, and I'll go back to when I was really a little kid and started following tennis. We had Johnny Mack had Borg, Connors, and then Lendl. Andre had Pete. Roger has Rafa and Novak. You obviously had Martina. Um, I already listed, and just it was the very cliff notes of all your accomplishments. I listed everything that you did. Is there, I'm always curious, is there any small percentage, big percentage, whatever it may be, that wishes one person, and you know, in your case it would be Martina, wasn't around in your era, so maybe you could even add more titles to the already incredible resume? Or, you know, I'll say in the alternative, are you happy that that one person was around that pushed you physically and mentally to maybe another level that you maybe didn't even believe you can get right. to? Um, I, there's no question that I am much happier that Martina was in my era. Even and we, she and I laugh about it. We look at our, both of our 18 Grand Slams in the same era, and we think, just think if one of us wasn't around, how many of the other would have? would have won and we joke about it all the time but at the same time having her as my rival um i think made me push me and made me improve my game and my fitness level and um my you know my interest in the game for so long i mean 30 to retire at 34 in my day was you know was was the norm but it was pretty old too i mean usually players um, retired late 20s early 30s so she kept me in the game she kept me trying to improve my game improve my net game um and going to the gym and doing a lot of weights improving my fitness level um so it was definitely definitely a plus and then by the time we both retired we realized that maybe our rivalry was bigger than both of us individually you know it became something very very um, formidable in tennis and very respected. And so we sort of made our mark individually as well as together. Yeah, I mean, for the listeners, the rivalry was second to none. I mean, you played 90 times. That's not 19. That's 90 times. It's unbelievable. And, you know, to, to talk about rivals, you know, we hear Roger Federer talk about how he had to change his game to deal with Rafa. You know, he went to a bigger racket a few years ago. Right ready to stay on the baseline, rip that one-hander, and not try to chip it every time. Um, You also hear Roger talk in press conferences that it's so hard to prepare for Rafa because there's no one really that plays like him, obviously, to that level. You, I think, had a similar scenario when you were dealing with Martina. Was that a challenge for your team? I mean, yeah, there were lefties on tour, but to play the type of aggressive style Martina played, and obviously to that skill level, I mean, how did you go about trying to prepare for that? 
Well, you know, in looking back, I think that was one of the things I could have done better is was the fact um, to try to find a left-handed player to practice with, even if I wasn't playing Martina in the finals of a tournament. And because, I mean, I remember Dennis Ralston was my coach, and he would always get Luke Jensen um, for me to hit with because Luke – um, went to SMU and Dennis was living in Dallas and Luke was ambidextrous. I mean, right. he could he played right-handed as well as left-handed and he could serve those big lefty serves wide to the backhand side. And so I almost it's like Dennis almost saved him for the finals before I played Martina. But looking back, it would have been nice to you know play a lot more practice with a lot more lefties because we didn't have a lot of lefties playing right in that era i mean i can't even i really can't even i mean sylvia hanukkah in the 70s but there weren't a lot of lefties and i didn't really get um to practice that left-handed serve or to um as much as i would have liked to so in retrospect it would i probably that was my fault my decision should have been let's find a lefty to practice on the, on the weeks off. So I sort of get used to that spin and, and the angles and the, and the left hand sort of wide to the backhand. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, that Roger has it right that anytime he can, he's probably finding lefties, um, to play, to practice against a lot more than I ever did. So, yeah. And he said, he, yeah. he said he does, but even when he, when he does find those lefties, they just don't hit that type of ball, which is so, so hard. But, well, I think that, yeah, Rafa hits a, double the spin, right. you know, and he's, he really clears the net and he, he hits with, with such spin that the ball is a foot higher than, than most players. So, For sure. Yeah, unless he maybe he could pay Rafa to, you know, practice with him a little bit. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, don't think, I don't think so either. By the way, for the listeners, and this was not scripted, uh, uh, Chris mentioned Luke Jensen. We just spoke to Luke like two or three episodes before uh, this one. So check it out. Oh, it's uh, it's released near the end of uh, the end of 2019. So um, Luke, as you oh, know, all energy okay. all the time, all energy okay. all the time. It was great. Um, I do want to kind of talk about your relationship with, with Martina off the court now. And again, right. kind of talk about rivals. Cause again, uh, we mentioned, we mentioned right. Roger and Rafa all the time. And, and I mentioned Roger Rafa because their rivalry and your rivalry. I mean, those are the two, two, two of the tops. So um, it's amazing to me that Roger and Rafa, while they're still competing at such a high level, are also so respectful of each other and, and friends. And how was it? Again, we, we know you're really, really close with Martina now, but is it really possible to completely let your guard down when, when both of you are competing for the same slice of the pie? probably harder for me than for her you know I think Martinez was probably a little more open back in those days than I was I was you know I it was hard for me to have really good friendships and to really care about somebody and then have to go out and compete against them and I felt that with my sister I had to play her three times and I wanted to you know throw up on the court I, I hated I couldn't look her in the eye I just want to get off the court and um so I, so I really kept my distance um, with Martina for for a long time, um, and we had our ups and downs. I mean, it wasn't all peaches and cream. You know, we had our ups and downs with our friendship. Some years we were close, and I would go over to her house and have dumplings that her mother would make, and 
I remember going to Czechoslovakia for Fed Cup, and we were very close then. And then other years, you know, we didn't really talk to each other. So it was, remember, it was an 18-year rivalry. We had our ups and downs. But then after we stopped playing, and even at the end of our career, I think we were confident enough in, in ourselves to reach out and become really good friends and have each other's backs and we did and now she lives like 30 minutes from me here in, in Florida which as she's following me all over the she's following me <laughs> and she's she really is and um I'm just kidding but um she lives 30 minutes away I've been at her house and we've had you know we have a glass of wine and and uh there's no tension and there's no competitiveness and we really do love and respect one another. Yeah, I think it's natural that obviously when both of you are done competing at that elite level, uh, you are able to easier let your guard kind of down, you know, let your guard down. I just feel it's so difficult. Now you could obviously be respectful of everyone. Um, but to be really close yeah. and best friends uh, when you're when you're competing, and again, it's just not being a professional tennis player. I mean, you are competing at the highest level of your respective sport. It's always fun for people on the outside right. to see that element. Um, so. Yeah, you want to keep your edge, and you want to be you want to approach it sort of unemotionally when you're out there, and and very. Uh, business-like and uh, because as, as soon as emotion started to creep into my um, into my psyche you know my into my game as soon as emotions that uh, that I mean that was the strongest part of my game was being able to be cool and and almost unemotional out there and just take it as a business and as a sport and not take it personal and as soon as I felt emotional for my opponent then my game level would drop a little bit. So I was aware of that and therefore, you know, didn't have my best friends weren't necessarily top players. Right. They were more the middle ranked players or the low ranked players because I felt kind of, I could be myself and more relaxed. Yeah. No, I think that that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, just from the outside, obviously, and I speak on behalf of myself and others. I mean, that rivalry and the relationship that it has um, evolved into—it's just incredible to see. And you guys added so Thank so you. much to the sport, and it's so cool to see both of you as close as you are right now. Um, we can talk Thank about you. your career and your um, rivalry with Martina forever, but I want to kind of um, flip over to the commentating side and hear your perspective on the young U.S. talent on the women's side. Because, of course, we've had Venus and Serena for so long. And in 2017, we had an All-American U.S. Open semifinals with Venus, Sloan, Madison, and Coco Vandaway. And now you have the likes yeah. of <laughs> yeah. now you have the likes of Amanda, Anisimova, Coco Goff, Katie McNally, you know, Danielle Collins. I'm just naming a few. The future yeah. is really, really bright. Um, what are your thoughts on, yeah. on the female side right now? Um, great thoughts. I mean, I, I still feel that Sloan and Madison... Didn't even mention um, Madison Keys. That's my fault. Madison, <laughs> yeah, Sloan and Madison still have, uh, you know, still have a lot left in them. You know what I'm saying? I, I feel like even though Sloan won the US Open, she has the game to win, other, to win more Grand Slams. And um, Madison as well. Madison has the power. Um, Coco Vandeweghe is unfortunate, unfortunate that she was injured, but right. she was really starting to do well, and hopefully she'll get her game back and, and get to that level. But I love the way Sonia Kennan played all last year. She was, you know, probably the most competitive, hungry player out there, um, and she she really did great. I love the way Coco Golf plays. She's athletic. She's smart. 
she's wise for her age and she's going to be a giant killer you know she's going to go out there this year and have a great year i'm no doubt um amanda and samova also you know again was out for a little bit but i think she's she started to um well i believe got to sunny's the french open right and she was only 17 so she's she's got a good future and then katie mcnally of course a little different style, you know, being sort of volleyer, more aggressive, getting to the net. Um, but she's a, she also plays a wonderful kind of game. So I think women's tennis um, worldwide, international-wide, and worldwide is, is looking very strong at this point. And, and it needs to because you can't rely on Serena and Venus and Maria Sharapova, oops, there goes the lawnmower. Hold on. No. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, here I go. You know, you can't rely on those three champions that I just named to carry the torch for much longer. You right. know, they've been dominant the last 10, 15, 20 years. So, it's you know, these new names are coming at a good time. For sure. And, you know, when we talk about the men, and it's it really is unfair to, to compare them to the generation in the late 80s, early 90s, the coming up, the Agassiz, the Sampras, the Couriers, the Changs. Um, But I will ask your thoughts. I mean, why do you think that the women are so far ahead of the men? Obviously, the men are dealing with the big three, but it's more than just the big three. What do you think uh, that the, the females are having a little bit more success on the American side than the men right now? Well, tennis is the number one sport in women's sports you know when you look at it no matter how you look at it it's the number one sport as far as uh, money and as far as um you know publicity as far as image um endorsements marketing it's the number one sport uh, in uh, in the world and in america and i think in america tennis is not the number one sport in the men's and i think a lot of our Great athletes are being are, are choosing other sports, yeah. maybe choosing team sports. There's so many great team sports out there, and a lot of a lot of athletes enjoy team spirit and that camaraderie and not having all the pressure on them. You know? So, I mean, I think it's you know tennis is down the down the line as far as uh, ratings and. Uh, when it comes to the men, but in the women's um, game, it's it's just everybody wants to be a every young girl who grows up wants to be a professional tennis player. Yeah. But you don't see that every boy that grows up might want to be a basketball player or a football player or a baseball player or a soccer player. You know, so there there's just more choices I think with the with the boys now nowadays. No, that's great insight. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to kind of take you back because I remember. Uh, your very last U.S. Open, I believe it was, and um, you played one of those young phenoms, and her name was Monica Sellis, and you beat her pretty good that day, and I I wanted to kind of pick your brain and be like, you knew, everybody knew how good Monica was going to be, there, there there was no right. surprise. Going Walking out on court, knowing that you're facing, you know, a future champion, there was no doubt that, that was going to happen, um, What's it like facing a young phenom like that? And, you know, you're still trying to, to push him off just a little bit longer. You know, the only thing that helped me, because, 
people remember I played Tracy Austin when she was young. I played Monica. I played Steffi, you know, all when they were 14, 15 years old. And I was the established player. And I felt all the pressure. It was, there's a lot of pressure when you're a top player and you're playing. Anybody who plays Coco Golf will tell you that. Right. right. Now. You know, there's a lot of pressure. But the shoe was on the other foot. And I also was 15 and 16 when I played Billie Jean and Margaret Cord and all the those current champions, those past champions. So I, you know, it, it comes for full circle. You can't, you have to understand that you have to put up with the pressure because other players put, put up with the pressure when they played me, right. you know, when I was younger. So, you know, I kind of reverted back to thinking about, you know, don't, don't make a big deal about it. You, you remember you were 15 when you beat Billie Jean King. How do you think she felt? You know? Yeah. So, um, whenever I walked on the court with Monica or Steffi, cause they were the same era and they were, you know, when they were 14, 15 years old, I definitely felt more pressure than I was, pl- if I was playing my peer. Definitely, because I didn't want to lose. Right. I didn't want to lose to a 14 or 15 year old. <laughs> you know, whether it's my ego or my pride or whatever, I didn't want to lose. So um, I was kind of extra, you know, focused and extra concentrating on the match. No, that's cool. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to hear your perspective on that one match, especially because it was your final U.S. Open. Um, yeah. At the beginning, yeah. at the beginning of our conversation, we said you were enjoying the, the Florida sunshine um, where you reside, and I want to kind of end. Um, with you talking about your academy, the Everett Academy. Um, I know you're involved in it. I know you and your brother uh, both own it. Kind of talk a little bit about how you got into that, Um, what what you guys, what what the message is there, any any people that we should really keep an eye on in the next couple years. Um, I'll kind of let you run with this. Yeah, I um okay, so we we started this tennis academy over 20 years ago, like 23, 24 years ago, and my brother John had managed Saddlebrook, tennis academy and which was in tampa and he came to me one day and he said you know let's can we build um why don't we build an academy here in boca you know there's so many kids in south florida i think it would be great and successful and i think we could do a good job and i like said no 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 i didn't want to invest because it would be my money we invested right (laughs) so i was like what, what do you want from me, John? He goes, well, the money, you know. So I said, no, no, no. So after two years of him bugging me, um, I finally uh, agreed that we would start it. But I said, okay, you've got to manage it since you know, you know, you know the ropes better, much better than I do. And and um, I'll come out and help the kids, but you need to manage it. So we started 20 plus years ago and we've, it's been very successful and we've had a great run and are having a great run. And, um, it's been fun for me to mentor, you know, the kids. It, the whole concept is really um, to develop the whole child, not just not just their tennis skills, but character skills as well. You know, d- discipline, perseverance, setting goals, qualities that that they can use in in life as well as on the tennis court. And um, you know, we have a we have a school. We have an online school there, and um, we have two dorms, and we have kids from all over the world that come and and have goals. And it's funny; we always ask them what their goals are, and some of them, you know, want to be number one in their high school team. Others want to be number one in their country. Others want to be on the WTA tour. You know, right. all their goals are different, but we always listen to to what they say about their goals. And and but most of the kids graduate with college scholarships and that's what I think that's a realistic goal and I think that's what 
we're very proud of the fact that they can go on to good colleges and play on the tennis team and get free room aboard and their families are happy and um so but my but my role because we have like 18 coaches you know and my role basically is to uh, you know the mental side of the game for them to t- they come to me and they go Gosh, I, you know i had set four one and i got tight what do i do what do, you know what do i do in my next match and so the mental part the strategy and and i you know just try to to inspire them but it's been great to wake up in the morning and know that I have somewhere to go to. You right. know, it's it's been fun for me. And you have a little bit, you have something for everybody. You have full-time, part-time, you have holiday camps, you have summer yes. camps. Um, so if you want to yeah. try it out, if you want to, uh, again, there's there's not a one-size-fits-all approach here. It's a, it's a, if you want to, if you want to try something, they, the academy will, uh, We'll have something for for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're smaller, you know, than voluntaries, and we always, you know, we always tell people when they come and they're they're looking at academies. We say, go to voluntaries, go to Saddlebrook, you know, um, go to different ones before you decide which one, because everyone's different. Everyone's a little different, and and so, but we we have great kids there, great families, and. Um, we're more like a boutique in the sense of we have 80 to 100 full-timers, you know, which which is small compared to, say, voluntaries, but it is, um, you know, we, we give them a lot of our effort and a lot of our attention, and um, you're as good as your coaching, you know. It Just because there's effort when you walk through the door, it could be a complete failure, you know. It doesn't matter, the name doesn't matter as much as what, goes in the program and my brother john has built a great program with with great coaching and i think that's important awesome and then for anyone who wants more information on it obviously you just go to the website and they'll get all the information yeah. that you need oh thank you um <laughs> well well chris um thank you i don't want to take any more of your time um you do again you had an incredible career you do an awesome job um with your commentary and really appreciate you sharing your perspective on on a few of the things that we talked about today Thank you, David. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Uh, have a good rest of the week. Thanks so much. Okay. All Bye. right. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. There you have it, Chris Everett. If I stumbled uh, upon my words a little bit, uh, please excuse me because that was an absolute legend that we just had the privilege of talking to. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Again, you can uh, follow Courtside with Beelins and Tennis. It's part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google and iTunes. Everybody, hope you really enjoyed that and stay tuned for another guest soon. Thank you.